Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate, and don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each week, and go leave a rating and review. Just go to the show page on the app that you're using right now and hit five stars, and then leave a review. Here is a review from Apple Podcasts. LendyLady22 says, thanks for this podcast. I have enjoyed listening and learning new things from the experts you have on. Your work is building up the church, which is part of your aim. Well done, and thanks. Well, thank you, LendyLady22. And you, listener, if you want to leave a review, go to the bottom of the show page on Apple Podcasts and click the link that says write a review. Or you can email me, let me know what you think about the show. You can email your feedback to Johnson at allnations.us. We have a great show for you today. It's the best of 2023. We're going to count down the most listened to episodes of the past year, and I am going to count down my favorite books of the year. But before we dive in, I just have to say thank you. Thank you to you, the listener. I've so enjoyed making this podcast and having the conversations that I'm having But without you, there wouldn't be a podcast. So keep listening. Keep spreading the word. Tell your friends, your family, even your enemies to listen to Shifting Culture. Also, this podcast is not free to make. So if you would like to give to help me produce more episodes, I would greatly appreciate it. There is a link at the bottom of the episode description that says support the show. Just click on that and donate. Thank you so much. So let's dive in. To get us started, I want to share my picks for my favorite books of the year. I have a list of 20. So here are the numbers 20 to 11 before we get to the top 10. At number 20 is Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation by Jesse Cruikshank. At number 19 is I Didn't Survive, Emerging Whole After Deception, Persecution, and Hidden Abuse by Nakma Hanahi. Number 18 is Pivot, the priorities, practices, and powers that can transform your church into a Tove culture by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. And number 17 is Metanoia, how God radically transforms people, churches, and organizations from the inside out by Alan Hirsch with Rob Kelly. And number 16 is Fear Not, a Christian appreciation of horror movies by Josh Larson. At number 15 is Wake Up to Wonder, 22 Invitations to Amazement in the Everyday 
by Karen Wright Marsh. Number 14, The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here by Caitlin Chess. Number 13, What If Jesus Was Serious About Heaven? A Visual Guide to Experiencing God's Kingdom Among Us by Sky Jatani. And number 12 is Orphaned Believers, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find the Way Home by Sarah Billups. Number 11 is Stumbling Toward Eternity, Losing and Finding Ourselves in the Cross of Jesus by Josh White. So check out these books and the episodes that accompany them. So let's get into the top 10. My number 10 book of the year is The Scandal of Leadership, Unmasking the Powers of Domination in the Church by J.R. Woodward. Even though you could tell that this book is written from a dissertation and it could use a bit more editing to make it more accessible, the themes and ideas in this book are crucial for any leader to understand and implement. The idea that we are imitators and that if we imitate anyone or anything other than Christ, we will have problems is something that really needs to get into the soul of people as quickly as possible. The research, scholarship, and examples in this book make for something that will be a reference and a go-to for years to come. Now, let's hear from our most listened to episodes of the year. At number 10 is episode 136, Alan Hirsch and Rob Kelly. Metanoia, How God Radically Transforms People, Churches, and Organizations from the Inside Out. In this episode, Alan Hirsch and Rob Kelly join us to talk about their book, Metanoia. We have a great conversation on repentance, movements, organizational change, unlearning, relearning, vision, future thinking, and more. This metanoia process that they have taken us through is really important. How do we have our minds renewed? How do we shift paradigms and have our minds blown? Here, they are talking about the importance of metanoia. Listen, as we hear from Alan Hirsch and Rob Kelly. There is no plan B. Uh, So if we put the Michel thing out of the equation, where do we go? Back to some church growth theory, back to traditional expressions or, you know, liturgical churches. They're not doing particularly well and they're not pricking in the ground. You know, so there's no plan B anyway, but here's the problem. I think Josh is suggesting, bro, um, is that you know the word mission was so clear it was adopted in the end, and then of course, but not without not with under with any understanding, and so you know, you know if everything's mission, nothing's mission, and so that's what happened, and the word was co-opted to and became just another technique word, it's a classic, you know, trying to jump the chasm without having to do any paradigm shifting. And um, that was hugely problematic. Why I tend to use the word movement now, I've also got the potential for making the same mistake, but it's the, um, I've tried to try and use a concrete expression of mission. And when you talk about a very concrete expression of it, movements are made to move. They're moving. And so they're most missional expression of the ecclesia. And because they're moving and and um, and they're adaptable and they're on frontiers, you know, so there's a natural, um, you know, dynamic to them, which you don't get in a more static version. So I tend to use that because it actually gives us a kind of, um, I said, a concrete image of what a, what a missional looks like. If you want to know what missional looks like, movements are the best expression, not the only, 
There would be other ways of expressing the mission of God in the world, but movements are very embodiments of mission. So that's why. Let's get to number nine. Uh, my number nine book of the year is You Could Make This Place Beautiful by Maggie Smith. This is a memoir about the end of a marriage, the beginning of a new life, and finding a way to beauty through the disillusionment of circumstance. That is a hard thing to pull off, but poet Maggie Smith does it. It's raw, it's honest, and beautifully written. I read it and listened to the audiobook read by Maggie. It is a gorgeous book. The number nine most listened to episode of the year is episode 124, James Martin, The Promise of Jesus's Greatest Miracle. In this episode, Father James Martin and I have a great conversation around the story of Lazarus and the implications of it for our life. We talk through disappointments, how Jesus weeps with us through our sorrows, brings new life, and invites us into a participatory life of helping free other people. Here is Father Martin. Interestingly, the town is called, it's in Palestinian territory, and it's called, which I love this, it's called Al-Azariya, which means the place of Lazarus. They still call it that in, in sort of the, the Arabic tongue. Um, and so, you know, people go into the tomb physically, pilgrims, and they imagine leaving things behind. But you don't have to, as you're saying, you don't have to go to the Holy Land to do that. Uh, I think that all of us have something that in our lives um, prevents us from living freely. Okay, as I said before, a grudge, a resentment, a disappointment, and often for people it's a disappointment um, that we have to really unburden ourselves of or, or an unhealthy pattern of living. We might be mean or sarcastic or something. And the invitation is always uh, to new life. So for me, I think that the, the, the sort of imaginative way of thinking about this is what is God calling me to leave behind? What is God calling me to let die? Uh, because we are always, every day, are being invited into new life by Jesus, right? He wants us to let go of things, right? Now, in in the Gospels, we see this in different ways. Like the rich young man, what is he supposed to let go of? He's supposed to let go of his wealth. He can't do it. He goes away sad. There, So Jesus always puts his finger on the thing that people need to leave behind. Like Peter leaving behind his net. Uh, or the woman at the well leaving her jug behind. You go and proclaim the good news. So... There's a leaving behind, but it's also kind of the Paschal mystery. Once you die to self, you are able to experience new life uh, in Christ. Uh, and this is, I think this is an invitation every day for, for all of us. Let us get to number eight. My number eight book of the year, even though it came out in 2022, is Between the Listening and the Telling, How Stories Can Save Us by Mark Iaconelli. This is a story about story. This book is stunning. It's a beautiful portrait into the art of listening and storytelling and the healing it creates in communities. It makes us want to be a better person. And it makes me want to create space for people to tell their story and to facilitate healing and growth. The number eight most listened to episode of the year is episode 135, Scott McKnight, The Pivotal Priorities, Practices, and Powers to Transform into a Tove Culture. In this episode, Scott McKnight talks about one of his new books, Pivot. This book is a follow-up to A Church Called Tove. A Church Called Tove really hit a nerve when it debuted. In that book, they wrote about toxic church culture and contrast it to Tove culture or goodness culture. Pivot is the book of implementation. What are the steps to get to a Tove church? What are the things that we need to implement? We talk about Holy Spirit, Christ-likeness, models, long patience, giving ownership over to the church body, 
and more. It is a great conversation. Here, you can listen to a little bit of Scott McKnight. Let's just say you realize that your church has too much institution creep, that it's it's too interested in, it has too much power in the culture and protecting the culture of the church, which usually means protecting the pastor, protecting the leaders, protecting the brand, protecting the reputation in the community, et cetera. And let's just say that's where it is. Well, the solution to that is uh, to flip into a culture that knows uh, one another's names, one another's stories, so that the church becomes a fellowship of people who know one another. You won't you won't have an institution creep in a church where everybody loves one another. You don't have that. I mean, the institution creep is that we're a loving fellowship. And so you have to um, to start working on that topic. And then uh, it's not going to work, uh, the, the solution is not going to work uh, by a series of sermons. It's going to work by, and, and this is a very important point in our book, is that we have to start focusing on character rather than number. And character is much, sometimes I think, character is much harder to measure than numbers. And I think sometimes we gravitate toward numbers because it's easy to measure. But numbers can be so false. So let's just say you have 300 people in your church, 175 of which come to church twice a month, maybe once and a half. So how many do you really have? You know, so that so numbers don't really tell the story. Some of those 175 who are who are barely engaged might be given a lot of money too. And that that starts contaminating everything. So uh, start working on character. Focus on on individual leaders in the church being examples of uh, that are worthy of being followed. And I think that you will begin to see, let's say you transform from an institution creep to a storytelling fellowship, and the leaders tell their story, and their story reveals their character. And then they become sort of models of who to follow, and other people begin to follow that. And uh, I think I think you can you can really start making an impact. On to number seven. My number seven book of the year is The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. The way that this is written helps any creative out there. And by any creative, Rick Rubin means every human because it takes creativity to walk through this world awake and aware. This book reminded me to be present and to create. It's also a book you can pick up and read a short chapter, put it down and practice what was there for the day. This is another one that I will go back to over and over again. The number seven most listened to episode of the year is episode 97, Pete Gregg, Shadows and Light. In this episode, Pete Gregg talks about the paradox of the kingdom, serving the good shepherd and the bleeding lamb, finding diverse perspectives in the church, the importance of prayer and hope for what could come out of Waverly Abbey. So let's hear from Pete Gregg. So when my wife was... Um, you know, she she suffered with a chronic illness for 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 you know twenty twenty one years now, and um, she's often been rushed in the hospital, and and uh, after serious epileptic fits. And on one occasion, Josh, I sat by her bedside so depressed 
because the night before she was having the seizure, I was crying out to God and it hadn't worked. Okay, it just didn't work. And you know, and people say, oh, well, maybe God wanted to teach you something. And I, I feel like kicking them and saying, learn something from that. Because what is there God can teach me through this seizure that he couldn't teach me or my wife through the previous 300, you know? So I'm depressed. I'm down. I'm not, I'm not naturally a good Christian. I, I found out years ago, I was, I was terrible at atheism. I was it really, like, I kept backsliding, talking to the God I didn't believe in. It was just dreadful. And so I resigned myself to being a Christian because I, I was less bad at it than atheism. And so, so, you know, I'm a Thomas. My wife, who got saved when she was 17, has the most unbelievable, unshakable faith. So I'm there in the hospital with her, and I'm saying, babe, maybe God just is, God isn't there. This is how bad my pastoral manner is, okay? maybe. The, and she turned to me and said, thanks for proposing that particular worldview to me at this moment in time. What you're saying is my suffering has no consequence, and that I am you know, the weakest link, that I need to be, according to Darwin, flushed out of the genetic pool, that, that there's no hope. So, you know, she reminded me that if you're a, an atheist, a secular humanist, you still go through all this stuff. It's just you don't have any hope for this life or the next. So I, I cling on to that bleeding lamb, and I, I cling on to the hem of the garment of that good shepherd, because... Life is too precarious, it's too wonderful and too terrifying without him. And I love hearing from Pete Craig. Let's move on to number six. My number six book of the year is Revelation for the Rest of Us, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple by Scott McKnight with Cody Matchett. Well, growing up with dispensationalism in the Left Behind era had me disillusioned with the book of Revelation, but Scott and Cody's book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, got me excited about what Revelation says For the first time, reading it as a book of discipleship that raises up dissident disciples in the shadow of Babylon is a take that is applicable across time and geography. This is one that I highly, highly recommend. So the number six most listened to episode of the year is episode 95, Beth Paws, a God who identifies with us in our grief and suffering. In this episode, Beth Paws talks about incarnational work, her journey with Jesus, and moments of changing her mind. She shares her journey through the valley of grief and desolation during her divorce and finding that Jesus, the one who suffered, was with her through it all. Here is Beth Potts. It gets me just a little bit emotional. I, My faith has changed. My faith has changed a lot. I preach now with hope. But I don't shy away from lament, from weeping, from wailing. And I don't try to cover it up by saying, well, all things work together for good. You know what? I don't think everything works out for good. you imagine someone saying to Jesus on the cross, don't worry, Jesus, all things work out for the good. You know, like this <laughs> misquoting scripture in yeah. ways that taken out of context become deeply wounding. I want to be a person who can say, I mean, do believe in the hope of Christ. 
I do believe that God is good. And I do believe, and I wait for the fullness of shalom to be unveiled. And I look throughout scripture and I sit in those passages that say one day all things will be made right and tears will be wiped away from eyes and death will have no more place, neither mourning. It, it, it is the thing that sometimes makes me tick and keep going is the beauty of restoration and redemption. In the meantime, I have so much more room for mystery. I can hold space for mystery in my faith. And as my good friend shared this weekend with me, in holding mystery, we actually create more room for all. You get you can't have one without the other. And so in the mystery of saying not all of my questions are answered, and the mystery of not knowing why some people's prayers are answered and other people's are not in the way that they want them to, I found that I can hold space for saying I don't know and I may not know. But I also have more space for the awe of things that are beautiful. And we don't have an answer for why they're so beautiful. Yeah. It's just like if we try to numb our, you can't selectively numb feelings and emotion. If I try to numb out my pain or my disappointment, I'm going to numb out my joy and my laughter. Isn't that beautiful that we could hold in tension, the shadows and light, like Pete Gregg says, or, you know, the the hope and the lament uh, that Beth Paws talks about. It is a beautiful thing that we could hold those in tension in the kingdom is a paradox. It is like that. Uh, let's move on to number five. My number five book of the year is Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church by Nijay Gupta. The scholarship and illumination of the role of women in the early church is extremely helpful. I really love books like this. They take something that is familiar and makes us look again and realize that something was there all along, but we missed it. I have given this book away more than any other this year. The number five most listened to episode of the year is episode 104, Hugh Halter, Family on Mission. In this episode, Hugh Halter talks about family on mission, raising kingdomlings, not church kids, the importance of being less individualistic, materialistic, and consumeristic, releasing our kids to the Lord, discipleship in the family, and more. Here is a bit of Hugh Halter. As adults, we can easily tell the Lord, hey, do whatever you want with me, but don't jack with my kids. Um, my, uh, you know, Ryan did pass away two years ago. He always had his struggle, so we were we were ready for him to die at any moment. Uh, but just three weeks ago, my youngest daughter, McKenna, who's 27, almost died. Uh, she was pregnant and lost the baby, but she had a massive hemorrhage. And uh, for about three days, we literally uh, were thinking we were going to lose the second of our three children. And uh, and I remember walking out in the field, and I, I had it out with the Lord. I'm like, you got one of them. You don't get two. And there I am being tested at chapter three of the book I wrote. Again, it's like some point 
um, we have to give all of our kids back to the Lord. And I don't, hopefully it's on week one when you get them, you take the baby and you go, oh, I, I have this, God's given me a, this beautiful baby. But the sooner you can give them back and literally mean it. And I got there around day 10. I told the Lord, hey, sorry about the attitude. If you need to take the second one, you know, I said, I'm not okay, but I'm okay. Like whatever, whatever your will is. But when you, when you say that, then you don't, you're not just a protector of your child. You're actually a developer. And that's why I tell people, don't buy this book if you're just looking for cool little parenting tips. Um, this book is about raising kids that maybe someday would give their life for the story of Jesus. And that does not preach real well. Uh, it lives really well if you do that. And, you know, where that gets played out, I remember uh, my daughters coming to me in high school after uh, one of their friends had been killed in an alcohol-related accident at a party. And they were angry and they were spitting mad and they were in tears and they said, we're going to go to every party from here on out. As a parent, you don't really want to hear that your daughters are going to go to every party. But we talked about it and I said, if you'll take a couple more kids with you, you'll go as four of you will always go together. Because I knew what their mission was. Their mission was to make sure nobody ever drove drunk again. And so, yeah, when when you settle that issue, I'm going to let Jesus take my kids. So what's funny is like the Bible that we read is all those crazy stories and those stories and the disciples dying. Most of those cats were 22 to 25 years of age. A lot when they started to follow Jesus, they were in their late teens probably. Um, so it's not that weird to see your 17-year-old go, hey, I want to go on mission. And uh, we have to be willing to trust them to the Lord on that. Now, you don't do that when they're four, right? We still need to protect and provide. But there's a point where all of our kids, sometimes they get their ones when they're 12, sometimes 18, 19, sometimes 24. But at some point, they're going to get to the point where they have to run their own show. And you got to give them the car keys, even if they're going to wrap the car around a pole. At some point, you have to trust your kids with the Lord as much as you would trust your own life to the Lord. That is so crucial and so difficult to do is trust our kids to the Lord. But uh, we want to be able to release them to develop our children. And Hugh Alter, he nailed it. It was uh, such a good conversation. Let's get on to number four. My number four book of the year is The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis by Karen Swallow Pryor. This is a stunning cultural analysis, which is incredibly written. Pryor takes Charles Taylor's social imaginary concept and runs with it. Our collective imagination has led us to this moment of crisis in the American evangelical church, and our collective imagination can move us into a brighter future. This is the type of book that I get excited for. The number four most listened to episode of the year is episode 122, Karen Swallow Pryor, the evangelical imagination that has shaped a culture in crisis. Look at that. We have synergy. Karen Swallow Pryor and I have a fantastic conversation around evangelical culture and true Christian faith. We dig into the history of evangelical faith, what myths, stories, and narratives have contributed to the underlying assumptions we have on how the world works. And we talk about how to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of unexamined culture. Now, here is a bit of Karen Swallow Pryor. 
And one of the broader perspectives I bring into the book is how there was a reformation about 500 years ago, 600, I'm not good at the math now, uh, I guess it's 500 years ago. Um, and there were, you know, that reformation was brought about because there were, um, there were abuses and oppressions and distortions of the gospel and corruption. Uh, and so I think we're seeing some similar things now. Um, and, you know, just as the printing press allowed people to um, read and communicate with one another new ideas, more biblical ideas, and also um, false teachings and heresies that needed to be exposed or, or unorthodox practices or abusive practices. The digital age is allowing a similar thing today. So people are talking, they're communicating, they're seeing um, abuses that have been covered up are being um, uncovered. And so I think we're in a moment that the crisis of the subtitle where we're faced with with these things um and i think history will tell that there was sort of a some sort of turning point in this moment maybe another reformation i talk about that in the book um but you know for whatever reason in his sovereignty and providence god has allowed us in this historical moment to be the ones to see this to face it to grapple with it um, and we must, we just, our call is to be faithful. We have to be faithful. We have to choose whether we will um, adhere to the culture or the institution or the empire um, or cling to Jesus, to eternal truth, to the things that are not of the culture. Um, and again, we can't escape culture entirely. We're all, you know, God, God put us in these human cultures. Um, but at this moment, he's allowing us to see um, what is of human corruption and what is of God. Uh, and it feels very hard. I've talked to so many people. It feels like we're going through a very hard time that, that is unprecedented in our, our lifetimes. Um, but if we are faithful and we choose truth rather than power and we choose love um, rather than, um, you know, advantage, and uh, we choose Jesus over all of the song that human empires are made of, that I think, um, yeah, the bride of Christ might come out a little bit more um, polished through, through Christ and a little bit more um, of what Jesus wants it to be for future generations, if not for us in this moment. All right, now we're getting to the top three. My number three book of the year is The Deep Down Things, Practices for Growing Hope in Times of Despair by Amber C. Haynes and Seth Haynes. Man, this is a beautiful and poignant book. There is something magical when someone shares their story of pain, abuse, and despair and shares practicals on ways to find hope again. This book feels like the embodiment of Jesus, light seeping into the cracks of darkness, illuminating the path home to him. Man, I loved this book. It's just beautiful. The number three most listened to episode of the year is episode 130. Michael Frost returns. Mission is the shape of water. In this episode, Michael Frost and I have a great conversation around his book, Mission is the Shape of Water. We hear how mission has taken different shapes throughout the centuries, but the principles of mission remain the same. We hear stories about the missionaries of the first few centuries after Christ, Boniface, and the Celtic movement. 
Zinzendorf and the Moravians, Mary Slessor and Alice Seeley Harris. We then move into how all of this history impacts our world today, what we can learn, take from, and move on from as we join God in his mission to draw all peoples to himself. So let's listen to Mike Frost. Having viewed how different Christians throughout different eras of history have been shaped by their contexts and have been faithful to the gospel, what is our current context? What what What's the container into which we're pouring mission? And, you know, Christians are used to sort of thinking about all the terrible things that are happening in the world, and there are themes and trends in society today that we need to resist and be concerned about. There's no question about that. But in what ways are we on the doorstep of a genocide in, in the Belgian Congo? To what degree are we engaging with the issue of slavery? Or to what degree are we actually responding to uh, um, an agrarian society in Southern Africa, which is being attacked by the Boers and the Zulus? Like, like, let's observe the context, and then what challenge are we being called into? And I think that there are lots of interesting trends and themes that I outline toward the end of the book, where I feel like there's an incredible movement toward the democratization of leadership. Uh, what we're seeing now is this kind of emergence of um, of very young people leaving, leading global movements, like Malala, uh, as I've said, um, like Greta Thunberg, people like that. Whether you like, you know, everything they say or do is not the point. The point is, actually, what we're now seeing is grassroots movements bubbling up, often led by very young, passionate people. And this is offering us a shape. This is asking us, does the gospel have something to say to this? And I definitely think it does. That, In fact, what we've discovered throughout history is this is the way the gospel moves, not from the top down, not from the powerful, uh, not from those uh, with uh, with lots of autonomy and access, but actually from listening to the voices of the marginal or the poor or the young and from recognising actually movements emerge this way in really significant ways. So I think that churches, I mean, I think that the Christians ought to see that mission ought to have something to say about uh, creation care and about issues to do with climate change, ought to have concerns about uh, the role of women and the protection of women. And uh, I know that this is a triggering kind of phrase for a lot of people, but a toxic kind of masculinity, which does orient men toward um, control and command and even violence. And I feel like, uh, I'm not saying all men are violent, I am saying that actually here, listen to things like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter, these, you don't have to join the whole movement or agree with everything that these movements are about, but they are shaping our world. And if we ask ourselves, does the gospel have anything to say about racial reconciliation and justice? Of course it does. Does it have anything to say about the valuing of women as equal to men? Of course it does. Anything to say about care for the environment? Of course it does. And it's about us being willing to listen to the context as it's demanding a new world and a better world. There are lots of very positive themes there that are emerging. Uh, kind of leaderless uh, uh, movements uh, are happening all around the world. I mean, we saw it at Asbury with the recent kind of Asbury revival. It was, uh, if it's a revival or awakening or whatever we call it. I mean, when people ask the students at Asbury, like, you know, who's in charge? It looks like 
like there's organization here. You're wheeling in whiteboards and you're writing prayer requests on and there are bad you know, the bad the, the worship band is being replenished by new people and it's like there's organization here. So who's in charge? And the answer was no one. Like this is how movements occur these days. There isn't a, a big kahuna in charge of this. It's it's not a man who's running this thing. It is like organic. It's like water bubbling up. And so, again, we need to look at this shape. There's something really interesting going on here, which is asking us to reconsider what mission might look like. Um, there are a lot of command and control men who are used to the old days back in the late 20th century where men started organizations with top-down leadership. They had objectives and goals, and they proceeded forward to, to, uh, to facilitate them. Well, that was the shape back then, but I don't think that's what the shape will look like uh, in our current day or, or moving forward. I think a rediscovery of the power of, of prayer and of the kind of chaotic, organic movements that we see happening that emerge out of those kinds of things, a rediscovery of the fullness of the gospel, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, it's not just good news about how Jesus died for your sins, not to minimize that as part of the, the good news, but it is also about the reign of God, which is about joy and justice and healing and peacemaking and the, 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 a renewed sense of family or community and the very presence of God, um, to discover the fullness of that and all the ethics related to that. Um, I think our world is demanding, imperfectly, no, no question, but demanding a world of equality and justice, creation care, respect for the marginalized, respect for other cultures, multi-generational, multi-ethnic community. Now, they're not getting it right. They're getting it wrong in all sorts of ways. But that yearning there is actually yearning for the very things that the kingdom is all about. And we need to take that seriously and shape mission accordingly. And here I am talking about Mike Frost again, because my number two book of the year is Mission is the Shape of Water, Learning from the Past to Inform Our Role in the World Today by Michael Frost. I love this book. Frost takes missions history and makes it come alive for us today. He shows how the gospel is good news for people across time and culture and their specific context. He doesn't hold back and shows both the good and the bad that missions movement has created. And then he draws a line from the past to our current moment and propels us into the future with a vision of the reign and rule of God's kingdom that is inspiring and holistic. Well, the number two most listened to episode of the year is episode 113, Andrew Root Returns When Church Stops Working. In this episode, Andrew Root talks about his latest book, When Church Stops Working, and he answers the question, why isn't innovation the answer? He talks through waiting for the Spirit's leading, paying attention to our stories, being witnesses to the acts of God, and sitting with the sorrows of our neighbors. Let's hear a bit from Andy Root. We all want to say, and we all should say in many ways, that you know, Pentecost starts the church. So we're looking at Acts 2, and you know, especially in this day and age for the last 20 years as we thought about the revitalization of protestantism we thought we got to be acts to churches and things like that and, and there's something really i think true about that that we should embrace but there we do forget that in acts one the first command that jesus gives to the church is to go to jerusalem and not do anything but just to wait and um wait for the spirit to come 
and yeah, we do play with, I mean, I guess it's an exegetical, you know, contested point, but our kind of playing with it is, you know, that they get, they get antsy. And so they, what do you do when you're antsy at a church and you feel like you're trying to do something against not knowing what to do is you start calling meetings and getting people on committees, you know? Um, I, but to, you know, to directly address your question, I, I mean, I think there's something inherent in what it means to be a human being who, that we're always kind of evaluating our lives in the sense that we're always trying to aim our lives towards something good that leads, it, it compels us to want to do something. Um, and we do know ourselves and find ourselves deep in communities as we do things, as, as we actually take on actions. But there is a deep sense here that what's at stake in that is if you're aimed towards the wrong action, if, if you end up having a kind of misconstrued understanding of what is good, you can get things really messed up. And, you know, Jesus command here to wait is really not to create a, it absolutely is not to create a community that doesn't do anything in the world or doesn't make a difference in the world or is so self internally, uh, kind of constituted that it just wants to sit around and think about itself or something. That's the last thing Jesus wants. But it, but he, I think Jesus wants to create a community that is dependent on the spirit and the spirit's leading. And that does take a spiritual discipline. I mean, it's a, it's a discipline of learning how to wait. And what we're waiting for really is not to like our bank accounts to accrue or even for our energy to go up and be able to do something. What we're waiting for is the leading of the spirit, um, the spirit to lead us. So, you know, Pentecost happens after the casting of the lots for the 12th disciple. And at least some theologians have interpreted this um, that, you know, like we don't hear anything again of, of after, after the selection is made, but we hear a lot in the rest of acts about paul you know so 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 the spirit selects paul um whether you want to call paul the 12th apostle or not but paul thinks that about himself like he thinks his gospel is not mediated from anyone just like peter and james and john it comes directly from jesus i mean he's very clear about that in galatians you know like you don't have to be circumcised because my gospel too came directly from from jesus so he has this deep sense that he he is an apostle in the same kind of immediacy that that any of the twelve or eleven uh, had encountered and walked with walked with Jesus. And I do think that to hear the Spirit, we have to take on this ability to wait. And especially in a late modern time, where it just feels like I guess it's back to our building thing again. Like do something, even if it's the wrong thing, do something. I don't know. I mean, that's a good, probably capitalist principle. I'm not sure it's a Christian principle. You know, that like just do, even if it's the wrong thing, just do it. I don't I don't know. I think in the in the wisdom of Christianity, there's a sense of like, wait and be with your neighbor, hear their stories, go out spaces to break bread together and uh, share in each other's lives. And particularly, there's a kind of dynamic of what does it mean to share in the sorrow of the world and to share in the sorrow of the neighbor and in the midst of that, God's going to call you to something profound. But there is a kind of passiveness to that. And I, I know that's even a really bad word for, for us late modern middle class, you know, upwardly mobile people. Like to be passive is like the worst thing you could be. But at the core, even of the Reformation, Luther really thinks that the call of justification or the implications of justification is that we are rendered passive. 
to have God's act and that there's freedom in that passivity, that there's the learning to receive a gift. And so I think that's the ultimate thing. And maybe it is that us late modern people, especially Americans who lived in consumer capitalist societies, we don't really believe in gifts. You know, we don't really receive in, in waiting to re- to receive a gift. We think you earn what you get and, uh, in, in hard work is what achieves it. And so how dare we, uh, wait. And yet I think if we don't wait, we just end up having this deep temptation of turning God into a product, into a pet, into our mascot, that we forget that God is not God. And we think that, uh, maybe we even think the church is more important than God, which I think is something to be aware of. And here we are at our number one, number one book, number one episode. And there's some synergy again right now. The number one book of the year is The Church in an Age of Secular Mysticisms, Why Spiritualities Without God Fail to Transform Us by Andrew Root. We just heard from him and When Church Stops Working, which is a fantastic read. I would highly recommend When Church Stops Working uh, as a brilliant distillation of the first five books of the Secular Age series, and then read this one, The Church in an Age of Secular Mysticisms. Man, this book awakened new synapses in my mind. It made sense of the world in which we live in a way that is stunning and profound. There are a few books that make you see the world differently. This one is a prime example. You know, the whole Secular Age series that Andy has written is incredible. And the number one most listened to episode of the year, here it is. We have Synergy. Episode 128, Andrew Root, The Church in an Age of Secular Mysticisms. So Andy and I have a great discussion around his new book, Because we live with an utter buffet of spiritualities and we have our choice of what we use to transform us and because we live in the age of the self in which everything has to go through the self, we are caught in tension and we have become guilt-saturated. This is not because we live under the should of God's commands, but because we could have been better. We have let ourselves down. This leads to more depression This leads to more anxiety. So what do we do? We try and fix ourselves. But Andy argues a couple of things here that we get into. That memoirists are the new mystics and they point to a way of transformation. And all of our conflicts are not polarized in two directions, but they are triangulated. There are three points of conflict. What are they? Well, you have to listen to the whole episode to find out. But once again, here is a little bit of Andy Root as he talks about the church in an age of secular mysticisms. What ends up happening is everything becomes a hack to perform better. And one of the things that happens particularly with with an AA, so you know, we're, you're referencing these other memoirs. So you know, there are these memoirs of heroic action, but there are also these memoirs that also had a deep sense of the self, which was this kind of sense of your inner genius. You know, you find your inner genius and those had came around romance where like people founded spirituality around falling in love, but they ultimately kind of came down to you find your inner, your inner artist kind of, um, and this inner artist is who you most are and you get, you win affirmation for that. But in both of those sides, the kind of inner genius or the heroic action, it really is about the self winning ground for itself. 
But then there were these other memoirs and um, they were not just memoirs of kind of, you know, what we could call disparagingly like religious leftovers, you know, like people like you and me who still are like deeply involved in the church and still try to make a case for certain Christian visions of the world. Like these were people who didn't grow up in a church, who didn't, you know, were, were to, you know, in a youth group or something, but they all had a very different kind of perspective of what changed them. And what changed them was not that they found their inner genius or they found themselves heroic impulses. What they discovered is that their action could not save them. What they discovered is that the more that they tried to do the things that that would that would get them, that would help them perform, the more they lost themselves, the more they lost um, kind of grip on what it meant to be human. And, and these really were at the core narratives of addiction, like the addict um, really thinks that their actions can can set them right or justify them in some way. And the move of AA, which is so beautiful, is that you have to surrender. You have to surrender to the fact that you are an alcoholic and you have to have a, some kind of sense of a higher power uh, that you now are, are surrendering to. And it's not very dogmatic necessarily, but it's a profound, and this is one of the reasons I think AA is so profound, is up against the performative self of late modernity. It's a starkly different kind of theological anthropology. It says your actions cannot save you and look what your actions have done. And one of the memoirs that really illustrates this was this memoir called The Recovering uh, by an author named Jameson. And she ends up like just, you know, she's been drinking. She's a, a, a writer. She's at the Iowa um, Writers Writers Workshop, you know, one of the great writing centers in, in, in America. And she just like, you just drink when you're when you're like a MA student can lit, you just drink. And that's what all the great 20th century writers did. You know, like Hemingway's just drunk all the time. And so if you want to be a good writer, you have to drink because that's what supposedly gets your words out. But it also gives you these crazy experiences you write about. And she ends up in AA and she kind of thinks to herself, though she's not really honest to herself, she's kind of thinks like, oh, good. Now I'll be able to harvest all sorts of stories. So it's her job to, you know, like everyone has to, she has to give up and tell her story. She has to make a confession, as we would say in the Christian tradition, that she's an alcoholic. And so, you know, you have to, you have to narrate that confession. So she starts telling her story and she's very aware that she's performing, that she's giving a performance. And one of these guys in the back, one of these recovering alcoholics yells at the top of his lungs in the middle of her presenting this story. He just lurts out this is boring. You know, he just yells at the top of his lungs, this is boring. And it, it, it shook her and it, it, it led to this realization that she was, that he was absolutely right. Like you can't BS a BS or, you know what I mean? Like he, he, he knew that she was in, that she was not making a confession. She was performing herself. Um, and it did take her down this road where she realized and it's really quite fascinating in these attic, attic memoirs that she realized she needed to start praying. Um, and she didn't, she didn't believe any of it. She didn't feel like she could believe it, but she, and she told these, these AA, uh, leaders, like, I, I don't believe in this. And they're like, well, you know, chain smoking at the time, like, who cares? You just do it. Um, and there's a sense where you surrender to prayer itself. And she finds this deep sense of restoration and healing through the confession that the self is not magnificent, that the self needs something from outside it as luther would say in the kind of opposition to the turned in self that you need a foreign righteousness to meet you that your righteousness is not buried within you that the righteousness though is a free gift of grace that is outside of you that can come and meet you if you'll surrender that you need to be ministered to by the spirit that you need something from outside you um 
to claim you, to come near to you. And I think this is the kind of crux of where we're at in our cultural context that we often say to young people, which is why they're so depressed and anxious, that you need to perform yourself, that you need to be your magnificent self. You need to find it. You need to find your inner genius. But I think there's something incredibly profound about at least the, the kind of Protestant Christian confession that's to say, you need to confess and surrender to something outside of you um, and search it and and see what what happens here in that you you are not magnificent. You are beautifully and wonderfully made, but you're beautifully and wonderfully made to be in relationship with others, to be encountered and ministered to by others, to be cared for by others. Um, it's not what you do that matters. It's who comes to you and who meets you. Um, and so there, there's a really profound sense of transformation that happens in those stories. Well, there you have it, everyone. That was our best of 2023 episode. It has been such a fantastic year. And we have even more incredible episodes for you in 2024. I'll be posting more videos, have some great ideas for a Shifting Culture subscription where you get bonus episodes, early access, and other perks. And we have some awesome guests already lined up for you. So join us for more in 2024. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or X, as people call it, uh, threads, and YouTube. And send me an email. Let me know your favorite episodes and some of your favorite books. Thanks, everyone. Have a happy new year. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.